people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. A great thing to do up front is to take some time and get to know people on a personal level. Plug into the minds of the world's cutting edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. Everybody, before we start the episode, I have an important announcement to make. We are going to start a new feature on the show, an AMA at the end, where you'll get a chance to interact with me and I get to answer any question you have. AMA stands for Ask Me Anything. And so if you have any questions around your workplace, things that you want around productivity, managing your team, scaling the organization, or about me or Mindvalley, go ahead and email me the question on jason at mindvalley.com. I look forward to hearing all of your questions and we'll get a chance to interact at the end of future podcast episodes. Now let's get started. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Superhumans at Work. This is your host, Jason Campbell. And we're going to be talking today about leadership. I mean, it is such an important field. And I love all the past episodes that we've had talking about the future of work. And what I've noticed is that one of the core competencies that will be relevant as we move forward in the world is going to be our abilities to work with other humans. And in the workplace, that means sometimes you need to lead other humans. You need to work towards a project. You need to accomplish certain goals. And you need to understand what is the interaction that is necessary with other people on your team to be as highly effective as possible. And leadership is that one quality, no matter where you are in the organization. If you nurture it, you will be better and more effective at your work. But the fact is, we have a lot of misconceptions around leadership. There's a lot of old tales that still live on. And we're going to be here to debunk these, talk about the new ways we can do it in a world that is rapidly innovating and leaders also need to change. Now, Alain Hunkins is coming here and he's a man that has has over 20 years of experience in the field. He's worked with companies you might know, such as Nike, HSBC. He's done a TEDx talk, which was about the most basic truth that most leaders forget. And hopefully we're gonna reveal that truth on the episode today. But the man himself has been a contributor of over 400 articles on the topics of leadership, creative thinking, and all aspects of being an extremely high performer in the workplace. So it is with my great pleasure that I bring him here on the show, Alain Hunkins. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Jason. I'm really excited to be with you today. Alain, I wanted to ask you, like you've been working and coaching like CEOs, executive, people of everywhere within the organization, and you really honed down the idea of leadership. I mean, you cracked the leadership code, which is the title of your latest book, Cracking the Leadership Code. And you've been doing this for 20 years. So I'd be curious to know, have we been seeing something that is relatively new in the leadership field? Have you noticed things that have different from when you started to where you are now? I'd be curious to know. Thanks, Jason. Yeah, so things are changing, and it's interesting because there's certain principles that are timeless and certain things that are changing. So some things that are timeless. Honesty, always important. It's not going away. Integrity, always important, not going away. And yet what we're seeing is, for example, the conversation around emotional intelligence, around purpose at work, around being authentic, about being able to bring your whole self to work, that's a relatively new conversation. I got to say, 20 years ago, those conversations were not happening in offices around the world. Hmm. So what kind of conversations would happen 20 years ago if we're not? Because this seems to be what is so in second nature to be being that I've been in the workplace for maybe the last 10 years, a little more long. And 
I've been raised and I've seen that being that I'm from what I think would be considered Gen Y. How were things before and why did we have a need to change and include these new things? Yeah, so the world has changed and what was before was much more of a kind of still top-down command and control and the focus was on the bottom line. And so the conversations around things like empathy or emotions at work or purpose they were poo-pooed. They were seen as not that important because, look, we have a business to run and we're going to outsource the rest of that stuff. That's great to think about if you want to on your own time, but that's not really part of what we do around here in part of the business world. And that, you know, different companies have come along and they're realizing that. And it's also what they're recognizing is that all of having employees that care about what's going on, having a clear sense of purpose, being transparent isn't just a nice thing to do. And there's been tons of research, and I go into some of the research in my book, it's tons of research, is it's actually good for the bottom line. The fact is, most people will do business with a company that does right in the world. I mean, look at the success of Patagonia, for example. Right? And they're known for being you know, stewards of the planet. And so people are looking for this because we recognize we have so many choices today. And in the world with the technology we have, the consumer has so much more power because we have so much more information. And not only does the consumer have more power, is that employees have more power. Fact is, between LinkedIn and Glassdoor and other websites like that, people know where the grass is greener. And if we are not having a compelling reason to stay at work where we are, we will gladly jump ship. And that's exactly what's happening. And, you know, if we look, you're talking about Gen Y, you know, this year, 2020, 59% of the workforce globally is Gen Y and Gen Z. And what's great is that Gen Y and Gen Z is demanding a new value proposition from work, that showing up and just getting a paycheck isn't good enough anymore, which is making leaders have to raise their game. Mm. I can see that happen as a trend. I mean, being at Mind Valley, these are always things that we've seen. This what attracted me to go work for Mind Valley is I knew there was a purpose. It's something that I wanted to do because I felt like I could do a job anywhere, but doing one that had more meaning, more purpose is what attracted me to go to that organization. Which, you know, for anybody sitting in an office saying, "Yeah, that's still like woo woo," and I don't feel like it's necessary, is it because we have a shortage of very qualified talent and they're very picky about the kind of job that they want? Because this is an interesting perspective. I hadn't thought of this before, but there's a lot of people that are afraid that a lot of jobs are being eliminated. So you would think there's a surplus of people in the workforce, yet it seems like companies need to adapt and really nurture the employees they have to continue being a high performer and to attract top talent. So what's that dynamic? You would think if there's more employees being available, looking for jobs, fearing eliminating their position, that now employers could be like, ah, oh, we can pick anybody. They're desperate to get a job. But yet, it's instead the opposite. We're really trying to find top talent as it's just a scarce resource. Is this the trend that's happening? Like what's what's going on? It is completely the trend that's happening. And what is so interesting, and I, I love what you said about in the opening about the fact that leadership is about working with other people and getting a job done. And you just said nothing about a job title or a position. And what we're seeing in the workplace is that leadership is everyone's business now. Whether it's your title or not, it's everyone's business. And what's going on is the fact that as we continue to advance with automation and artificial intelligence, all of the manual labor parts of our jobs are either going away or they're certainly diminishing, which means what's left is what is fundamentally human. 
And so the ability to work with other humans, that is to connect, to communicate, to collaborate, that's where the future of work is going. So that's all about things like critical thinking, about understanding who needs to know what I know? How do I build relationships? How do I network? And so those fundamental human things are becoming more and more important at every level. I love that trend and I'm so happy you mentioned that because this is a message I've been hearing, I see it, and it's such an exciting trend. I mean, here what you've said so far is that companies need to now make sure that they have a strong purpose that's actually benefiting the planet, being more of a steward company to the planet that's attracting top talent and it's helping the bottom line. And secondly, now you've just mentioned that the people that are succeeding are the ones that understand that it's about being more human. And so I wanted to transition into what does that mean from the concepts that you've researched about being more human as a leader? Like what is the aspects that I should really work on or maybe some things that I might not realize are so important for me to be a good leader? Yeah, sure. So before I get into kind of some of the practical, tactical tools I think it's useful, something to be aware of is recognizing what is the inherited leadership legacy that a lot of people have? Because the fact is a lot of people still are holding on, unconsciously even, holding on to a lot of the vestiges of command and control leadership, which was really given birth to in the dawn of the Industrial Revolution. And for the research for my book, and I go into this in the first part of the book, which is about context, is we get into looking at Frederick Winslow Taylor, who is the father of scientific management. And his whole belief system was based that workers could not be trusted. And so it was all about commanding and controlling people through fear and that if you wouldn't do the job, someone else would. In fact, Henry Ford has a famous quote about this. He once said about his factory workers in the Ford Motor Company, why is it every time I want a pair of hands, they come with a brain attached? You know, we don't live in that world anymore. So recognizing, first of all, are you carrying around some of the legacy of command and control? And the fact is most of us are because in the moment to default to, because I'm the boss, that's why, is a lot easier. The problem is what you end up with with compliance at best is compliance. What you don't get is commitment. So the first thing is to look at what is your belief system around when it comes to leading? And are you really recognizing that today leading in the 21st century, the leader's role is to facilitate and to serve the people they lead. It's a very different point of view than it used to be a long time ago. So you've got that. And then once you have that mindset and belief, what are the tools? And my book, the subtitle of the book is The Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders. And those three secrets are the parts two, three, and four of the book. It's connection, communication, and collaboration. And just to talk about these at a top line level, but if you think about connection, connection is the glue of relationships. And the fact is, at its core, leadership is nothing more than a relationship between the person who leads and the person who chooses to follow. And so the key to strong connection, there's two parts. One is empathy, right? So the willingness to have vulnerability, to be authentic, what we might call fundamentally human, that I can bring my whole self to work and I'm seen and valued and recognized for who that is. That's one part is empathy. And the other part is credibility. So the fact is we all judge other people on their track record. So how am I showing up? Am I credible? And I love the definition of credibility because if you think about the word credibility, it comes from the same word as credit, something to be loaned or entrusted. And the fact is employees are loaning their talent out on a daily basis. And so as a leader, what am I doing to earn 
the trust and the respect that they continue to loan that to me because it's not set in stone. Because another thing that's changed hugely is, again, if we go back 30, 40, 50 years, there was this contract that if you kept your head down, didn't speak up, just did what you were told, you'd have a job for 20, 30, 40 years and a gold watch and a pension. And that world has disappeared. And clearly, I mean, Gen Y and Gen Z is very aware of that. So since we don't have that longstanding employment contract, what's going to keep me here? So you've got connection and then you've got communication and collaboration as well. And we can go into those if you like. Well, I wanted to go back into the connection and this credibility aspect and talking also about like the whole aspect of empathy necessary when you're leading a team, you're connecting with them. And I have to admit, I've had times where I wasn't a very good leader. I obviously had some old models or maybe I was tired, but whatever the circumstance was, I remember working with a team member and I felt like they always had emotional needs and issues. And I had this thought where I was just like, ah, sometimes I just want them to get the job done. And that was kind of me going from that old model saying like, was I'm the boss and I said so. How do you flip the mind for someone that's struggling with that? Because they feel like, wow, I need to invest so much more energy in the people and I can barely take care of my family and my personal relationship. Now you're saying I need to manage a relationship at work. What's the upside of doing that? It's a great question around this. So the upside of getting to know people and building that is that when people feel valued, and again, the definition of we'll use it for empathy is that you understand somebody and care how they feel. And in the book, I actually get into, I mean, you just named one of the big barriers to leading with empathy, which is basically, it's this whole fear of the unknown. Like, in fact, I was working with a leader and he said, you know why I don't ask my people how they feel? Because if I ask them, they might tell me, I don't think I want that much information, right? And so realizing it's like this Pandora's box. On one level, it's almost like leaders want, just, just, just shut up and get your job done. And on one hand, you understand that. However, people have these rich emotional lives and there's stuff going on at work, outside of work that impacts us. And the fact is people only can perform at their best when they are feeling certain types of emotions. I mean, if you think about just for yourself, when are you performing at your best? My sense is you're probably feeling energized, engaged, happy, focused. You know, no one says, I perform at my best when I'm anxious, when I'm depressed, when I'm scattered. I mean, you just can't do it. And so what we have to realize is that as leaders, I don't care what industry you're in, you're in the people business. So when we say you need to take time to know people, instead of thinking of it as, as costing you time, think of it as an investment. I was just working last week with a bunch of leaders at a large bank in the UK. And as part of what I was doing, we have this exercise where they actually meet some junior people and they sit for half an hour. And the only point of the exercise is for them to engage. And in the debriefing of it, one of these senior leaders said to me, it's amazing, you know, I just spent half an hour with someone that I'd never met. And I know more about them than a number of people that I work with on my team every day. And he said, that's great and it scares me because I realize if I can't make the time to find out and learn about them on a personal level, what does it say about what I'm doing and how I'm spending my time? So like a lot of things, there's paradox to leadership, right? So we have this world with technology that moves at the speed of light, but humans move at the speed of matter. And there's times when we wanna go fast and there's times when I go slow. And I have a saying that I use when I teach leaders, I say, sometimes you gotta go slow to go fast. And particularly when you're starting the relationship building process, a great thing to do upfront is to take some time and get to know people on a personal level. Because you've heard the old expression, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. 
And when you can establish that emotional bank account, well, then people will contribute and they will commit much more fully and be much higher performers. You know, I've been lucky enough to witness what happens when I decide to take the time and care. And I have another colleague that works with alongside me here to get these podcasts out. And he's just an incredible rock star. And I actually love spending the time with him and actually coaching him and supporting him on being more productive and making him see how he can automate and delegate his work. And what I'm seeing and I'm witnessing is this person's really taking a proactive approach and feeling so empowered in the process to deliver more, whereas that he's now freed up more time. Now I ask him to come up with innovations. And this is not something I'm used to. I've always felt that as the leader or as the person that's kind of the specialist in a certain role, that it was my duty to come up with all the innovations, to come up with all the priorities. Yet now when I actually take an approach of actually caring for the people, investing with them, and even giving the chance of saying, what do you think? What is your list of priorities? What do you think would be the best ways to innovate? And I'm so surprised by the ideas that come back that I realize, like, wow, I don't need to work on that thinking mode and being a technician anymore. I just need to spend more time with the people. And it seems like the technicalities get solved by themselves. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, very much, Jason. What you describe is what I call the kind of the shift from being the fixer to being the leader, right? If you think about that first role you were saying, it's like, I thought I had to come up with all the innovations. You're in fix-it mode. You know, in my book, I write about this guy, Matt, and Matt is a district manager for a company. There's a hundred district managers. And when I met Matt, they rank all hundred by a, a series of key performance metrics. And when I met Matt, he was number one. And so I got a chance to interview him. I said, Matt, you know, you're number one. He'd been with the company about 20 years. I said, have you always been at the top of the heap? He said, no, when I started, I was number 84. I said, so what changed, you know, what changed to go from 84 to one? And what he said was very much what you said, Jason, which is he used to think of his role as I have to control everything. I have to fix it. I have to come in and look for the problems and tell people what to do. And what I realized was actually people don't want a fixer. You know, adults, and we're working with adults, right? Adults want to be led, but that means they want to be listened to. They want to be understood. They want a relationship. And guess what? Like you found, Jason, they start creating their own solutions. And the interesting thing that Matt said to me, he said, so I'm number one now. My life is way less stressful at number one than it was at number 84 because I'm not in constant firefighting reactive mode anymore because I've built relationships and I've built the bench strength. In his industry, there's a lot of turnover. And one of the things that happened was his turnover on his team started to go down because People wanted to stay because they felt like they were being valued. They felt like what they were doing had meaning and purpose and mattered. So making the shift from being a fixer to being a leader, and it starts with connection. Wow. And so we've established that the connection with both the credibility. So let's think about this credibility side. Are you saying that you're just consistent in the way that you show up as a leader? Is that the way they build the most credibility? Well, yeah, consistency is one part of it. Yeah. And in the book, I go into the three main things you can do to grow your credibility. And the first one is going to sound really obvious and it's super practical. It's showing up on time. Because if you stop and think about it, right? Think about this. Your presence is the easiest thing to measure, right? You're either there or not. You know, I've got two teenage kids now and, you know, they always would get awards in, in elementary school for, you know, days absent, right? Like if they could get the 100% attendance award, because look, it's really easy to measure attendance. Now, realizing when you set the tone with your presence, you're sending a really strong message, which is, I value you. And when you show up late, you're also sending a very clear message, which is, I value something else. If I had to pick one habit to start to develop my credibility, 
I would get really clear on my relationship to time. And I'll tell you, before I learned this, this was not a thing. I used to run late all the time and I came up with great stories. You know, I had great stories of this and that. And you know what? No one cares. No one cares about your excuses. And it doesn't matter whether or not you're meeting with a really important client or something else. I mean, a lot of people have worked with leaders who always have a good reason why they're pushing out their one-on-ones and whatever. You know, yeah, that reason might be good, but let's face it. If you're on the receiving end, the credibility goes down and the trust goes down. So number one would be credibility. And then from there, you can build on that and expand that into other commitments. So start to be really conscious about what you're saying yes to and then follow up. And for me, I write them all down. I write my commitments down because credibility booster number two is do what you say you're gonna do, which also means saying no to things that you know you can't do. I'm a big believer and I've seen it with leaders I work with under promise and over deliver. You know, don't spread yourself too thin and then you're not showing up. So that's number two. And then the third one you mentioned, which is about being consistent. You know, there's a great story about Doug Conant. He was the CEO of Campbell Soup and he was CEO for 10 years. And one of the things that Conant did consistently is he wrote thank you notes. In fact, he would spend with his assistants between 30 minutes and 60 minutes a day researching the company intranet to find out interesting things about employees. And he would write, and so this is kind of a mind-boggling number, but in the course of 10 years, he wrote 30,000 thank you notes to his employees. And just to let you know, Campbell's only had 20,000 employees at the time. So that works out to over eight thank you notes, seven days a week for 10 years. So talk about consistent commitment. I mean, it's, it's a great example. Now, I'm not saying that everyone needs to do that, but start to think about, you know, it's the power of compounding. Like, what is one thing that you can do on a consistent basis? Even if it's just, do you check in with people and say, hey, how are you doing? How can I help? You know, there's so many things that we can do to start to grow that muscle of consistency, which will lead to greater credibility and connection. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing those models. For everybody listening, you've noticed that we've covered the topic about meetings in a previous episode. If you go back about meeting sucks uh, with Cameron Harold, we talked about being on time, being such a critical thing. And again, you're mentioning it. I mean, this to me is a big pet peeve. And of course, because it's a pet peeve, it's probably something that I've experienced being the one that is late as well. So I don't want to claim to be an angel, but I love being given the awareness so that I can develop as a leader. And that's such a powerful thing to do. Jason, as you're saying that too, it's realizing, like you said, you're not an angel, you're not perfect. The other thing is, if you screw up, own it, right? I trust and respect someone who says, you know what? I screwed up. I'm sorry. I missed this. You know, I trust that so much more than a big story and an excuse. And I think my experience is most people do. So if we can take all of the political sideways conversations, it just saves so much time and effort and energy and it builds trust. I mean, I know for myself, like I hate when someone comes late and they feel like they need to tell the story. I don't care. Like, especially if I'm running the meeting, I'll Maybe I'm a little too rough about it, but they'll be late. I'll just be like, sit down. We're already in progress. And then they get the message. But then at the same time, if I come in late, I'll just be like, I fucked up. Yep. And I'm going to sit down. Exactly. (laughs) I trust that. So in that concept here, like this is already really powerful stuff to learn to be a better leader in the modern world. If I'm talking about communication collaboration, briefly, how does that look like and what can I nurture here? Yeah. So if we look at the research, when people say, what's the biggest challenges you face at work, communication almost always makes the top of the list. And so if we look at communication, it's so much easier said than done because getting alignment between what people say and what they actually mean and what we hear Right? Those are like three circles that have to overlap completely. And that happens about as often as one of those blue moons. It's very rare that something is that clear. 
And so in the book, I talk about the three main challenges to communicating. And the first one is this lack of alignment. And there's been great neuroscience research that come out in the last 20 years around what gets in the way. And one of the biggest challenges are our cognitive biases, right? And one of the biggest is this something called the projection bias. Psychologists call it the projection bias, which is where you unconsciously assume that other people are thinking the same thing that you are, because it's super clear in my mind. So I'll give you a quick example. So I've got some friends named Pam and Charlie that came to visit us in our house. And the way it works is they had to park their car behind our cars because we have a, a narrow driveway. And so I had to leave. So I asked Pam to move her car out. And I said, Pam, can you move your car out you know, in front of the house? She said, where should I park it? I said, go park your car in front of the house. And she said, you sure? You want me to park the car in front of the house? Yeah. So she went out. And so then I went to pull my car out. And as I'm pulling my car, I look over and I had to take this crazy double take because you know where Pam had parked her car? She'd not parked it where I thought, which was on the curb in front of the house, she parked it directly in front of the house as in on the flower bed in front of the house. And in that moment, as much as I wanted to blame Pam, like, what are you thinking? Like, how could you possibly do that? I realized she had taken my words literally. She had taken me word for word and that's how she processed the information. And I went, oh, there's the cognitive bias. And you see the cognitive bias at work all the time. And you hear it when people say things like, well, I sent the email, they should know what to do, right? You've heard that, right? Or, or doesn't senior management realize what a stupid process this is? So what we're assuming is that other people can understand things the way we do, and we don't. So I'll get into looking at these things, the different challenges to leading with communication. And then I talk about six simple tools that you can use to become a better communicator. And I'll give you just a simple one that's really easy. It's asking for a receipt. I mean, Jason, how many meetings have you been to and people are talking about all these ideas and then the meeting ends, but no one's actually said, and here's what I'm gonna do, right? So if you think about it, if you stop and ask for the receipt, you are confirming understanding. And there's a great example actually that comes from the fast food industry. Back in the 1980s, it was really common for people when they come up to the drive-through to order through the intercom, they go to the intercom and then they place their order and then they drive up to the window to pick up their food. And it was wrong a lot of the time, consistently wrong. And this went on for years and years. And then one day the drive-through mistake rates just plummeted. And you might be wondering, well, what happened? Well, it was really simple. The employees started to repeat the orders back to the customer before they start to process it. I mean, something as simple as that to confirm understanding. And so if you think about it in a work context, what if 10 minutes before we end, we say, okay, we've got 10 minutes left. Before we go, let's just recap. What is everyone saying that they're going to do? And then I can clarify and then I can say, we're doing this. And so we're capturing commitments and then we're taking action on those commitments as opposed to what we think they are. People are good at many things, but reading minds is not one of them. So if we think about how can we make our implicit assumptions explicit and asking for a receipt is a simple tool to be able to do that. Wow, thank you so much. I mean, I'm someone that often has this bias. Even worse than that, I'm sometimes like, why is this person not doing what I told them that they would do? <laughs> exactly. And I'd realize that I never told them. It was just in my head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There and you I, are. And then because I wouldn't communicate it, I'd have resentment to this person. I'd be like, oh, I told them to do a project once and they never did it. And I'm like, oh, wait, I never actually told them to do it. It was all in my head. And so I love this simple model. Just make sure you ask for a receipt. 
And then you make sure that everybody communicates that back. And obviously, communication is a topic we could go really in-depth with, but I'm so glad that everybody has at least this one action item. If you're in meetings, which you did start on time because you listened previously, <laughs> you now have the extra 10 minutes that you have to ask everybody to, and this is just a roundtable format, just say like, okay, everybody say what is your one action item or what action items you have from this meeting. Yeah, exactly. Whether that is, you know, making sure that you confirm what is the action that you're taking and just making sure people are clear. That's what you should be capturing because let's face it, we don't communicate for communication's sake. We communicate to create understanding because understanding becomes the shared platform for all future action, right? If we have understanding, clear understanding, we can make the best decisions to get the best results. And if we don't have that clarity of understanding, then the decisions we make aren't going to be as good. So it goes back to this principle of, clarity to decisions to results and that understanding is the goal of your communication i love it and so we've got our connection we've got our communication finally we're talking about collaboration what does this look like in the modern world yeah there's so many aspects to collaboration and one of the things to recognize and one of the things that i work with leaders they say how can i better motivate my team so clearly we want an engaged motivated workforce and here's the little secret about collaboration and motivation is you can't actually directly motivate anybody else. Because if you think I have to motivate them, I've just fallen back into that command and control trap of, you know, it's my job. No, you can't do that. But what you can do is think of yourself as a leadership choice architect. And I'll explain that in just a moment, is that you want to create an environment where people are most likely to motivate themselves. And I use that word choice architect, and that comes out of the field of behavioral economics. So all the work that has been done by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, they have a book called Nudge. And I'll give you a couple of examples of this. So you probably have heard that if you want people to eat smaller portions, if you put them on smaller plates, they'll eat smaller, right? Because the design of it influences how people think. Another example is if a country is trying to get people to sign up as organ donators, they're much more likely to do it if the default, they have to opt out instead of opting in, if it, the automatic is an opt-in. So these are examples of choice architecture. And so as leaders, we want to, instead of thinking of designing traditional structures like an architect, we want to actually design environments for people to thrive. And there's four basic needs that we want to design to make sure that people are getting these needs met. And these needs look different for different people, but there's some fundamental four basic needs that people need to have satisfied for them to thrive and collaborate and be at their best. And they are around the need for safety. So I know you had a podcast recently about psychological safety. So that's one aspect of that. So there's a need for safety. There's a need for energy that people have to feel energized where they are. So an example of that, a way to kind of build energy is how many of us, for example, have been through the two to three hour meeting or conference call that they didn't take a break? I mean, you just know that after 90 minutes, everyone's energy is flagging and people just keep going and going. That's the old industrial age mindset that we're somehow these machine parts. So a simple way to just to energize is take a break every 90 minutes, stop, take a break for 10 or 15 minutes and then come back. You know, again, it's one of these places of go slow to go fast. So you've got this need for safety, you've got this need for energy, and then you've got people have this need for purpose. So how do people feel that they are contributing to something that is greater than themselves? And in the book, I talk about, I think, six or seven different ways that you can grow your need for purpose. And one powerful way to do that for leaders to tell your leadership origin story and then for people to share their stories. I mean, storytelling, there's so much about storytelling and the power of sharing 
stories and showing how our stories are aligned, what brought us here. Because the fact is, if we're on a team together, something in the great scheme of the billions of people on the planet, here we are together working on this project together. How do we align? How do we end up here? And how do we make the most of that? And so we've got the need for safety, the need for energy, the need for purpose, and then the need for ownership. The fact is people want to own their work. And so what can I do as a leader to create a feeling of autonomy and giving people the trust and the latitude to be able to decide how they do the work as long as the work gets done? And we're seeing this more and more in the flexible workplace, in working from home, in terms of remote, is that you know results, because if we think about it, going back to working you know, eight hours a day, that's an industrial age mindset, right? Like, what am I getting done in those eight hours? How productive am I versus what are the results? And we see more and more organizations going toward the results only work environment or row as it's called. So that's a lot around collaboration. I also talk about how do you create great employee experiences and then how do you make things simpler? So there's a ton again it's 22 years of leadership training i wanted to share with people because i feel like if we can just break leadership down to its component behaviors we can move forward because progress only comes from practice and that's the only way to move forward so i wanted to pack a lot in here because you know, a lot of people struggle and so there's no need for leadership to be a mystery which is why i'm hoping that people can use this to crack the leadership code I mean, just by going through what we've talked about in the last 30 minutes has been amazing. Like you're so thoroughly researched on everything that you present and all of these systems are so applicable and so easy to understand, which is how leadership should be. Yeah. It doesn't need to be complex theory. It's simple. Yeah. I wanted to ask one more question, which is just like, if I am not in a title position of leadership, like I might be listening to this thinking, wow, this would be great that my leader could be like that, but I'm powerless. Like, how do I feel empowered with every position that I am to actually have this manifest within my company? Is there a role that I need to play? And what would that look like? Yeah. So remember, leadership isn't about a title. Leadership is a relationship. And any time that you want to try to get someone else to work with you towards achieving some kind of common goal, that's leadership. So whether you're an organization and you're having to kind of manage up, you know, manage your boss or across colleagues or whether it's customers, all these principles are applicable. And if I can start to recognize how I show up, so I can start with connection, I can start with credibility. Am I showing up on time? Am I the kind of person that people are gonna to want to trust? Am I modeling these things? You know, it's so easy for people to default to, well, I want my boss to go first. I want somebody else to do this first. And the fact is, what if the person that has to go first is the person that looks at you in the mirror every day? You know, that's the challenge of leadership is that, it's not for the faint of heart, and it's also not that complicated because it takes some courage to look in the mirror and look back and go, you know what, it's not perfect, and I'm willing to continue to work to get better. And I think something that people can do, no matter what your title, and I always suggest this to leaders and they say, what's the number one thing I can do, is find some people that you trust will give you the honest truth and ask them for feedback on how you're showing up, ask them what works well, and what do they think could be even better, and start to develop a plan, a plan of action of how you're going to address continuing to get better. Because I know for me, the only way I've gotten better is by getting feedback, and then learning how to go through that 
little pit in my stomach, feeling a fear of, they're not, you know, they don't like me. Like, no, they do like you. And that's why they're being honest. So, you know, it's not necessarily a comfortable process, but it gets easier the more that you do it. And I think that when people talk about, you know, part of a leader's job is getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's what we're talking about. You know, it's those sweaty palms. It's the, I've got to step forward and that's leadership. It's not always comfortable, but that's the way forward. And as my dental hygienist said to me, you'll love this, right? So I remember being in, she's great. Her name's Jackie and she's an awesome dental hygienist. And I was talking with her. I said, so Jackie, there's all these toothbrushes on the market. What's the best one that I should use, right? There's free floating bristles. There's sonic care toothbrushes. There's battery powered, which is the best one? And she stopped and she laughed at me. She laughed and she said, oh, that's really easy. The best toothbrush, it's the one you use twice a day, which I think is a great, metaphor for leadership. The fact is the tools are here, but it starts with a mindset and the belief that you can go. But once you have the mindset that you want to get better, pick a tool. doesn't matter which one. It could be asking for a receipt. It could be showing up on time, but start to practice it twice a day and then you'll see improvements. This was such a powerful episode. Alain, thank you so much for being here and sharing all these insights without holding anything back. For everybody listening, take a look at Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders, latest book by Alain Hunkins. And to recap it for everyone here, we really broke down the fact that industrial age models around leadership that were all about command and control do not hold in today's environment where you really need to work more on the human aspects to bring more collaboration, better communication, and ensuring that there's connection with the team members. It's improving the bottom line, and you can see that when people step into this new model of leadership, the companies thrive even more. And when we talked about connection, you're really talking about making sure you have the credibility You're showing up on time is a great tool that you can use immediately so that you can actually show to people that you care about them as opposed to always being late making excuses will take away your credibility. And the concept of empathy means that when you actually invest in people and take the time to learn about their personal lives, see how you can be a supporter and not a fixer, you'll see that you're actually going to have people on your team that are highly motivated, that are staying on your team, that are improving the results of the output of your team. And this is going to show in more results to the bottom line as well. Speaking about communication, we all have our own minds of how everything works, but having to understand that you need to communicate so much more so that you can actually have your point across because miscommunications create inefficiency, create resistance or resentment, but oftentimes it's just a question of making better communication. And a simple tool is post meetings. Use this receipt method, which is have everybody state what is it that they're going to do at the end of the meeting so you're very clear on the actions and make the corrections as necessary. And then finally, we talked about the whole collaboration, which is designing the environment to be more supportive for collaboration and understanding that don't fall back into the models of command and conquer. You really want to see what are the ways that people can be supported, both in understanding that you should nurture the safety, you should nurture the purpose, you should know that energy is important to manage. And of course, we had this last aspect. Oh my God, Alain, you'll have to tell me what this last aspect is. I did forget. Yeah, the piece around ownership. Yeah, for sure. Ownership. Yeah. And also, Jason, if listeners want to learn more, you can go to www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. And in fact, when you go there, that's the book page. You can download chapter one of the book for free to get a sense of what it's like. So it's www.crackingtheleadershipcode.com. Thank you so much for giving that away for people to go get a taste. I think it's going to be a fascinating read. I can't wait to pick up a copy myself. And everybody listening, thank you so much for being here. And Alain, thanks again for sharing so much with us. Thank you so much, Jason. It's been a pleasure.
Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the latest episode. And we had a question come in here from Hashim. And Hashim was asking about what are the ways that I work from home? I almost feel like this question was planted for me since I just released a mini quest with Mind Valley, which is in essence about five days towards optimizing everything you need to do to be better and more productive when you work from home. I know for me, the ways that I work, I'm at a table. I do have a separate screen. I have an extra monitor that I think makes me a little more productive, but I did this really cool thing, which is I found out what my energy number is. And so if you are a fan of Feng Shui, Marie Diamond in particular, so those of you who are part of our quests might've done the Feng Shui life quest. And in essence, you understand some of the principles around Feng Shui for optimizing your home as well as for your office. And one of the more important things is your desk should always face the door. If your back is to the door, then you actually block off abundance. And with my energy number three, being that I am a bringer of light, I also need to face a certain direction, which actually is my success direction. And that happens to be the exact way that I face the door. So I have a wide open door that's in my success direction. And this makes me feel very energetically aligned and ready to work. And I've actually had my calendar quite well structured. Now that doesn't mean I'm perfect with my calendar. I have my general guidelines and I do try to honor it as much as possible. But if you're familiar with my system of productivity is I do appreciate activities which are called procrastination on purpose, which means I do schedule things in. And if I notice that it did not happen, then that means I will procrastinate it forward into the future into a better time to have it done. And so my productivity at home is just making sure I have the right routines, getting up, making my meditation. I talked a bit about my morning routine last time. And of course, it's not the perfect one. I set the intention for perfection and I do my best every day. Some days I happen to be not as productive and I usually notice it's because of my sleep pattern. So the best way for me to wake up and get a good day done is actually to go to bed early. Not that exciting of feedback, but that's really the reality of making myself more productive. Of course, good internet connections, basic technology are all good things, but as long as I have my space and I communicate with the people that I live with, that I am on work mode, they keep their boundaries, they understand what it means when I need to work or I need to record audios, etc. They respect those boundaries, we communicate them clearly, and we make the most of the situation. So thanks again, Hashim, for the question. If you have any other questions, definitely do send them in. And of course, if you want to go through the five days of productivity training with me, go to mindvalley.com forward slash remote, where I go more in depth on how you can actually optimize your lifestyle with work at home, especially during these times with COVID-19. This is Jason Campbell, and until next time. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast.